Dear listeners, our most recent podcast on supporting families who have children with autism spectrum disorder was recorded on March 13th, 2020, just two days after the World Health Organization announced an international pandemic due to the novel coronavirus and COVID-19. In the month that has now passed, we have all been affected by COVID-19 in some way. Many of you have changed your practice to support families in novel and creative ways. We still felt it was important, and hopefully helpful, to post this podcast as it was recorded, but wanted to acknowledge that services and therapies are being offered in many different ways since that time. To all of you who support families and individuals with neurodevelopmental disorders such as ASD, thank you for continuing to reach out and connect with them. Developmental care may not be at the front line, so to speak, but the needs of these families and children are very much still in the front of our minds. Stay well, everyone. And hey, podcasts are a great way to pass some time at home. Welcome to Ponda Podcasts. I'm Dr. Jacqueline Ogilvie, developmental pediatrician from London, Ontario. Today we're talking about autism services and how to help guide families to decisions around selecting services or even thinking about how they might go about spending their childhood budget now that there's been a change in how fees and services are provided. I'm joined today by two developmental pediatricians from McMaster University and the Ron Joyce Children's Health Centre in Hamilton. I have Dr. Mohamed Zuberi and Dr. Olaf Kraus de Camargo uh, joining me today. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So as we know, in 2019, there was a big shift in service delivery uh, for autism supports and services so that the government was no longer the uh, both payer and provider of therapy services. And so now there's been a shift such that families are provided what's called a childhood budget. They're now tasked with the decisions around how to spend the funds because it's more of a direct funding model to families. Um, and so with that, there's gonna be expectations around providers and physicians, pediatricians in particular, to be able to help guide families to some <coughs> of these decisions. Now there's also some work being done within the province as um, many of our listeners know around uh, redesigning the program um, and looking towards a needs-based program. Mohammed, you were a member of that advisory panel do you mind talking to us a little bit about the key recommendations or the key um, vision that's coming out of those recommendations for the new program? Uh, sure, um, I'm, I'm happy to do so. And I think the, the one thing that I would sort of emphasize is that, you know, it is a program that continues to evolve. Um, and uh, the recommendations that were made by our panel were really kind of at the, at the get-go meant to be a guiding framework for then the, the, the government to sort of uh, take some more concrete actions. And so as we speak right now, I think the important thing to um, realize is that the point that you made, which is that the current model is one of childhood budgets, um, but that wasn't uh, necessarily what the um, Ontario Autism Program Advisory Panel recommended. Um, so I think, uh, you know, sort of keeping that in mind is particularly helpful. And, and the main driver for that sort of discrepancy um, from our end um, at the panel level was really that the childhood budget model doesn't necessarily um, capture the complexity of needs um, of the children that we uh, see, the children and youth that we see in their respective families. And so to sort of answer your question more directly, I think it's important to, to note that the 
the biggest kind of principle behind the design was to say, how do we, um, as, a, as, 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 as government, who's eventually going to implement this, um, match the needs of the families um, that uh, they're serving? And, and the tricky thing there, um, and I think it's important also to know, is that there's clinical needs. So there's the, the needs for therapies, as we sort of understand, um, but also the broader needs that, you know, we have to appreciate of the family within their respective um, environmental contexts. And, and what I mean by that is their, you know, their socioeconomic status, um, uh, you know, sort of their uh, exposure to uh, uh, the, the language, um, uh, the, the idea that, you know, they may be new to Canada. Canada, um, they may be in places where uh, access might be more challenging. So those are some of the broader kind of design pieces, um, uh, need being one, access being the other. So how do we, we make sure that families are able to access the, the, the supports and services that might be provided? Um, and then the bigger question is, as you alluded in your introduction, is who's the best person or best uh, institution or organization to provide that? Um, and, and whether it's the government through their regional providers um, or if it's, you know, sort of um, uh, practitioners that are out in the community. And, and that hasn't entirely been clarified yet at the program administration level. Um, but it is, it is a question that's evolving. Um, and I'm obviously happy to speak more about the, the program in specific. Um, but that's sort of a little bit of the design principles. That's great. So it really was some guiding principles around overarching themes and and decision points that would go into creating a new program. Um, and are there some uh, key pieces that the panel was hoping to see? Um, if you could talk a little more concretely about some of those pieces that would be in a, in a, uh, a program going forward, because I think there's some nice um, items outlined in the, the report that's available online. Absolutely, yeah. The, the, the program, again, as I say, is, is meant to be needs-based. How that need is determined is still to be answered, but at the core of the program are three or four main components that it outlined um, quite specifically, um, one being uh, what they refer to as the foundational services. So right. this is an idea that um, or, or where you know longitudinally families have access to um, more short-term consultation, opportunities for education, um, as it relates to you know various topics that might be common, um, feeding, toileting, um, and being able to get some quick advice around that. Um, and also at points of transition. So for instance, when children are starting school or uh, children might be approaching the age of 18 and will eventually have to graduate into the adult world. So that sort of was captured under a stream um, that's referred to as foundational services. Um, and then there are the core services, um, which would really encompass four different kinds of therapies. Um, one being uh, behavior therapies with a focus on ABA. Um, the other being uh, speech and language therapy, uh, then occupational therapy, um, and finally, um, a newer introduction, which hasn't existed in previous iterations, um, an emphasis on and a stream of on mental health. Um, and, and particularly um, recognizing that mental health is uh, an increased uh, issue um, uh, in, in individuals on the autism spectrum. And so um, that really would sort of capture the core services stream. And then relatedly, the two other um, streams that the, the, the document outlined was one around early intervention, 
Um, so the recognition that early intervention um, may have impact on uh, children in the long term uh, based on, you know, sort of the evidence that we have available. Again, right. we didn't specify what model or what early intervention would look like by just highlighting that you know, the principles behind it are important. Um, uh, and, and, and finally, the last being, uh, piece being um, uh, an urgent response mechanism. So this idea that, you know, families do end up in crisis um, and, 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 and the document does define crisis, but this, this notion that, you know, being able to access urgent services when a family is at that moment um, and being able to mobilize teams um, to help address that was sort of the, the fourth and final piece. Um, of that particular document. Yeah, and I, when I was reading that, I, I like that um, it also talked about some of these services having uh, a time limit to them so that there could be some movement through the services so that we could maybe have space to move between these streams. Um, so I think it's a really well-written piece. Um, so with the new, the new vision and that needs-based uh, program, though the, my understanding is that there's still going to be some onus on the family to be guiding and directing the services. Am I, am I right on that? Or is that, was that tackled by the panel differently? So it's a good point. Um, I think there, you know, compared to previous iterations, absolutely, there is a higher um, emphasis on families um, uh, needing to make some decisions. Um, and to a degree, the, the panel report did emphasize the importance of um, uh, establishing a model where there is case coordination um, and, and, and the role of a case coordinator, again, not specifying who specifically would fulfill that role, right. but the case coordinator potentially um, supporting the families in helping to make some of those decisions um, uh, with regards to planning. And again, that being a very different model than what it is currently which is the childhood budget model, which is essentially the money comes to the family and then the family um, has to make the decision as to how they're going to spend that, that, those funds within certain parameters that have been set out from the government um, within the Ontario Autism Program. Right. Um, so thinking about that, that, you know, it's going to be some time before a new program is rolled out. We've heard, uh, you know, there's going to be some changes coming forth in the spring, but the timely with timeliness with which all that's going to really be realized is still to be seen. So we're still within the situation where families have um, a childhood budget or a, a pot of funds that they have been allocated um, if they've come, you know, if their time has come up on the wait list. So I wanted to shift and maybe talk about for those families that uh, pediatricians and even ourselves are seeing in clinic, how do we help guide these families towards some of the services um, that, uh, that maybe um, they think they need to access or they want to access? And I know, Olaf, you, you've written a nice blog um, that is available, maybe we'll post uh, along with this podcast um, for families in choosing therapists. Um, do you wanna talk a little bit about how you um, counsel families around if those questions that they may be bringing? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I, I was confronted with families uh, suddenly asking me where they should go and where they should spend their money. Uh, before that, uh, that was never on my mind because mm -hmm. we work in a, a very renowned center and uh, it was just automatic. After we made the diagnosis, they were referred to our autism team and they did a great job. Um, and now we have uh, several providers in the city and around the city, and they can even go from Hampton to Toronto if they want to spend the money there. 
so we had to discuss with families, well, how do you uh, select a provider and how do you define what you actually need? Uh, and I had uh, both uh, families that uh, had suddenly $20,000 and felt they didn't need anything of that. And I had family that had the $5,000 and that they will, that will never be enough for my child. Uh, but nevertheless, how do you spend the money when you, when you get that, that budget? And um, <clears throat> I went back a bit on, a bit on, on aspects that are more related to my work at CanChild and at how we, see disability in general and what mm. uh, children that have a disability actually need in, in their support, in their treatment. And uh, more and more we, we focus now in, uh, in disability medicine, developmental medicine, on aspects that really uh, look into the participation and functioning of children. We don't look into a treatment that fixes something or mm. makes a child become normal but we need to discuss, okay, what are the essential things or the next things that you can imagine would be important for your child to participate? And that participation can be in, in your family life, in school, at daycare. What are the biggest challenges for your child and how could you best help that? And I think, so what I put in the blog is a couple of points that parents can go through. There are not clear indications which therapy exists for what, but there are more thought as um, reframing your questions and thinking about what is really important and what do you want to achieve with that therapy. So it is, uh, it starts with having the right questions and, and asking you the right questions. What, what, what is it what uh, you would like to achieve and where could therapy be helpful? And then uh, how that is how that, that matches with what different providers might offer you. So there are questions like, if you, if you pursue a goal, first you need to define that goal clearly, and how can you recognize that you reach that goal? Uh, would there be certain tools that the provider uses? Are there things that you can define yourself? How you will say, okay, that is a goal that we achieved now, being that things like what Muhammad just said, toilet training, for example, or bedtime routines or something like that, or is it um, more about the communication or the social skills, whatever that might fit into. And then how, how will you assess that? So does the provider have some baseline assessment and uh, how does that go? And, and that came also out of, of practical experiences. I had one, one family that uh, spent money in a full psychological assessment that just came out with the um, confirmation that the child actually has autism, which we already knew oh. before. So lots of money was spent on that instead of specific therapies. So I think these, uh, it is important for families to be really well informed what what is being offered and what is the purpose. If somebody offers to do an assessment, what is the purpose of that assessment? What we will get out of that is that diagnostic assessment is that as a baseline for the therapy that is being used and uh, another uh, and and then we we know that the the needs of, of families and the children often are very uh, very diverse and they can go uh, also in all these different areas there can be needs of the family there can be needs of the child there can be needs in different uh, domains of functioning 
and that often requires also the collaboration of different professionals. So is, is the provider that you are looking for, is that provider able to or collaborate with other providers or do they have other professionals within their team? Do they collaborate as a team? Will they collaborate also with the pediatrician or the family doctor that knows the family for a long time and uh, is probably the person that, or the profession that they trust? over years, uh, maybe even the person that made the initial diagnosis. Uh, so uh, I feel that is very important. I want, uh, if families choose a provider outside of our setting where we cannot access the chart immediately, that these providers feed back to us what they are doing, what are the goals, what therapy are you doing, what, how is the chart progressing? That is, is important to have that shared uh, documentation, that, that information sharing between all the the participants. I think that's a really good point because it's not just unique to autism because we see children with developmental needs yeah. and even complex care, my colleagues in complex care, see children who are visiting with multiple providers who are within the circle of care, but kind of traditionally outside of the hospital or the yeah. clinic. And so I think an example that comes to mind is optometry, for example, mm -hmm. very helpful to know kids are having their annual vision checks and that's going to be because all of Certainly, we don't have enough pediatric ophthalmologists to be seeing yeah. everybody, but there's a, this disconnect between sharing of information because they're outside of kind of the more this, the system that we're working within. So it's, it mm -hmm. often takes that extra step to get some of that information. It'd be nice to work on um, more cross collaboration so that therapists and we're sharing information back and forth and not relying on the family to be so much about the the hub of the spoke, right? And being yeah. the one that goes around and, and reports what other professionals have done. So I, I echo that collaboration. I'd love to see a different mechanism for even sharing amongst our community partners yeah, hopefully too. That, that can happen with more electronic health records or personal yes. health records, right? Yep. Even families can put in their observations, they can share what they are encountering and that becomes really a, a living document that is around the child. Right. And it also, you know, we see them in clinics as well. And then being able to connect with education, too, because that import, that's where they're spending their time and how the goals are being met in that setting. So important, too. Um, I wondered if uh, you guys have had that experience and you could talk about how you go through that goal setting with families, because I think we, we probably do it, um, you know, most most days in clinic. And, and sometimes we probably recognize we're doing it other times, maybe a little less so. But um, how do you go through helping families recognize that participation, that goal, that there's something tangible they could hone in on? And either one of you, who's, I'll ask both of you. Yeah, I, I think you, you need to, I had a patient yesterday or the day before yesterday that came with a father and the father said, well, I have the money now. Now I need to look for uh, ABA, right? And I said, well, first, before we say what therapy, let's, let's discuss what is actually the biggest issue right now. And the, this kid was, or is a, a kid that is verbal, is doing relatively well at school, but mm -hmm. really struggles in making friendships and connecting with others and might be very blunt in, in many situations. And so uh, once you describe it, and when, when, once you ask the parents to describe it, what is the daily routine and where are the difficulties or where do you feel is your child having struggles, then you can narrow it further down. Okay, this seems to be more the part of communication and social interactions. So let's look into programs that offer something in that direction. 
And um, then looking on the, there's the Autism Ontario has the, the website with the provider list. So you can go through a list, yep. you can look by, by community, by city, and then the websites of the different providers. And then you can have a first check in, okay, which provider actually offers, for example, social groups and, and find that out. And then you need to actually get in contact with them. And, and, and then there's, again, the step where, where the parents need to feel also comfortable with the provider. So it's, it's a lot of also a gut feeling. You need therapy is, is a relationship, is, is a connection between people. And sometimes people click well and sometimes they don't. And that's totally fine. So uh, I think parents need also to be empowered to say, if you don't feel okay with that person, it's fine to say, no, thank you. Uh, it shouldn't be an issue. You shouldn't be afraid of saying that because it is really important that you have a good relationship with the therapist and the child as well. Yeah, that's a good point, especially when we're talking about, you know, interpersonal skills that might be yeah. the focus of the therapy, that having a good fit yeah. can be a real piece of the recipe um, and giving them the permission yeah. to know that that's a piece of it. Good. Wondered, um, yeah. Mohammed, any any examples that come to mind or, or comments about that goal setting with families? Because I think it really is something that physicians can easily do without having to think they have to, you know, go back to training to know how to assess need, for example. But yeah, my sort of two strategies to try to get at what some of the goals that have immediate kind of practical um, benefit to the to the family are asking uh, one of two questions. One is, you know, as you were driving in today, um, what was it that you were hoping that we could most help with? And that often gives you some nice insight into where their mind is at and, and perhaps, you know, how we can um, pair um, what might be some of the therapy options available or uh, programs available to that. And then the other thing, which is a little bit more sort of, um, you know, kind of getting at, 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 a bit, at a bit more of a deeper level is, you know, what keeps you up at night? Um, and so I often wonder, you know, again, you know, what are the things that the parents are wondering or worrying about? And, and is there a way um, to start tapping into broader family needs? Because sometimes, you know, we, we do get very focused on the child because that's what our training has been historically. Um, and so being able to capture what the parents might be thinking about and then again, pairing the parent and caregiver with, with opportunities and supports that might be available. It's a good point. Yeah. Um, and having some of those questions that really get at, you know, what are you not doing now that you wish you could be doing? Or what are you avoiding doing now because of something that's getting in the way can flush out some of the, you know, maybe it wasn't the behavior, but it's now it's actually communication or, or vice versa. Okay. Um, One more area just for goals yeah. is also the school environment. So, um, and that, that might be sometimes conflicting, the goals that the school has and the goals that the parents have. And for that purpose, it's also important that providers come together. And I, I've seen this now also happening with, with private providers that they join me at school meetings and uh, join the discussion to really have uh, uh, everybody on the same page, what is the goal for this child? So it matches what the parents have in expectations and the, the school might have in expectations. That's a really good indicator that your, you know, your provider is kind of on on board and fully yeah. on the team, right? That they're invested to make sure that wherever the child is, the goals are being met yeah. unanimously. Um, anything else that you wanted to chat about um, with regards to um, your conversations you have with families in that regard? Just leave it open there. 
No, I'd, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about the other aspects of the document that you had put together, Olaf. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, well, what I think one aspect that we also pointed out is that kids are, are developing and uh, what you sometimes see, and I have worked in different uh, countries and environments, so I'm also familiar with providers. Uh, that's not the situation here in, in Ontario now, but I have uh, worked in places where there is a competition between providers. You have more providers than children need. Mm-hmm. And that leads to a situation where uh, therapies might go on forever because that's the living that they make and uh so i think that is also important to uh to be open to and prepared to revisit the goals from time to time and uh, check in if that is still necessary or even have the courage to have therapy breaks we often see kids that are in the break and then they suddenly develop skills they didn't develop for a whole while as if they have to uh, sit for a while and this has to be processed everything that has been put in in therapy has to be processed and then suddenly they put it into practice and you see the kids doing stuff they weren't doing before in that break of therapy so that can be actually therapeutic to stop a therapy therapy for a while and uh, and parents need to be comfortable in in driving that as well so it's it's a lot of things that are being expected of parents and i think uh, family doctors and pediatricians that accompany the family on that uh, route can be a good moderators of that process and in, in checking in with the family and say, okay, you, you are still in, in that therapy. What is, is the goal achieved and how do you know that it was achieved or do you have maybe new goals? Is that still uh, up to date? What you decided to let say a year ago. And, um, I think that is uh, an important conversation to have with them so that they feel empowered that they can change the direction of of a therapy and even stop it from time to time. And I've heard um, some of our, my therapy colleagues talk about that as the consolidation phase. And it makes Mm -hmm. a lot of sense to me that we can't just go um, be doing more and more, even with school, we take a break, we have with work, we need to take breaks. And and often I find I kind of percolate on thoughts that had been bouncing around and I get a little more clarity with that. So I often wonder if for kids, that's where some of the, that progress can happen with the the therapy that's gone in. So thinking, and you, you mentioned even reframing um, a little while back. So helping families reframe that it's not, lack of therapy, but maybe it's that consolidation phase that they may needed and regroup. Yeah. Um, I've heard from some of my general pediatrician colleagues that there's a little, um, some difficulty with getting comfortable even having uh, conversations about therapy because they're, they're looking for more resources to be, be knowledgeable of what's needed. Do you have any tips for general pediatricians working out in the community to, um, get familiar with the local resources or um, how they can help maybe families match their needs with the therapies that are being recommended? Uh, I think I would reach out to the therapist and the providers in in the neighborhood, in their city and and around, and uh, call without a specific child being uh, discussed, but just call out, say, okay, you have this nice website, you have several services here. Tell me a bit about what that is and what do you do and how does it look like? Or can I come and visit? And 
uh, on observe or uh, or just chat with with your team uh, to get to know. I think uh, usually getting to know the people is is the most helpful, and then you you also get a feeling as a professional. Well, how do we get along, and uh, how open are they with communication? How open they are to share information about our uh, common patients and so on. The other thing that I would just add to, to echo that is that it was specifically with autism in mind. Um, uh, the, the government has funded Autism Ontario and their service navigation program. So the, the names are a little bit confusing, but the, there's the Ontario Autism Program, which is where the childhood budget comes from. But separately, there is the Autism Ontario service navigation program that um, pediatricians may direct families to as well, um, whose one of their goals is to support families in some of that decision making. Um, along with applying for under, uh, other funding options that may be available. And, and it is regionally based, so that information is available online. That's true, right. Uh, Autism Ontario has some good resources, and then they were having some webinars, too, to help families um, uh, get a little more informed if they had questions. Um, so as we look forward, um, I think the there's some really nice um, hope in terms of changes to the to the program. Um, the document that the advisory panel has put forth outlines some really nice principles and and um, streams of care. I wondered what do you guys uh, think are some of the key challenges to realizing that um, the the shift away from what we've just been talking about with direct funding and and therapy decisions towards the uh, more needs based um, program that's been outlined going forward? Are there challenges that you um, have been struggling with, things you've been facing in clinic that you I, want to I th talk? I think it's an opportunity as well as it's a challenge. So the, the opportunity is that uh, I, I think these discussions that we are having that are forced to th by the budget are actually very healthy. They're, they're empowering and they put parents more in the driver's seat than they have been before. And I think that's how it should be. Uh, moving forward, the challenge will be more, uh, how do we uh, capture the needs of a family and how do we define that and how we define which services and resources might be the, the best fit for that family. And, and that has to be defined together with the family as well. And uh, my hope is that uh, there will be a program where this can happen so that it is not something that will be determined as it is now just by age, for example, or as it is determined by somebody at a desk uh, based on a chart review, but that uh, actually the, the decision about what is necessary for a family is a decision between the, the treating uh, professionals and the family. Uh, it might be that the treating is not the one that I'm, not the one that is providing the service, but there is a person that is, uh, the family has a trusting relationship with. That can be their family doctor, that can be their pediatrician or the development pediatrician, wherever the diagnosis had been made, that they then say, okay, let's sit together now and define what, what would be the best help for you. And there might be a variety of therapies, but also other supports that uh, a, therapy, uh, a family might require. As Mohammed said in the beginning, there might be other issues like language or the housing situation or other things that are equally important for the development of a child as the access to therapy. And these need to be weighed in the same way, I feel. 
It's true. If we go back to Maslow's hierarchy, right? If we got to work on some of those foundational yeah. factors before we can get to some of those uh, other um, higher order uh, therapies and interventions. Yeah. Yep. Um, Mohammed. Um, I, I would agree. I think the the other thing to consider um, in a in a needs based program is yes, you know, we may be able to fund the need, but then the question becomes at a capacity level. If our system has the capacity to be able to address all the needs at all times, and that may not be the case, which you know, it still brings us back to some of the conversations that you know, again, we had around. Um, the role of wait lists and 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 sort of the recognition that that may be needed. So I think that that's just a, at, at a systems level, you know, one consideration that could could pose a potential barrier. I think the other thing that we want to think about that we haven't thought as much about is that you know we've 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 constructed this program with a, a very uh, much a pediatric and child and youth lens, right? And so. True think in the foreseeable future, the recognition that, you know, all of our children are, you know, are become adults and, and, and sort of the capacity at, at, at that level to be able to, um, uh, you know, address the needs of, 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 of young adults in, into their adulthood, I think is going to be important. And, and part of the reason I say that is because, you know, as a system at large, we have to be thinking about not just one age group, um, uh, even though, you know, all three of us here are developmental pediatricians, um, we do want to be acknowledging that, you know, our patient population are that, and then the children, youth and families that we serve do go on to become, become adults and just being ready um, uh, because that may inevitably pose some barriers as well in the near future. That's true. We want the funnel to keep, to not be narrowed at one point or another, that it's continuing to, to flow, that they can go seamlessly uh, through. Towards, uh, uh, what people are applying or, uh, trying to put out here now is a disability strategy so that it is for all ages for all conditions and how could this which is a big portion of our population how can this portion of our population be best supported and i think it, it will have to be a combination from uh, social and health services together and there are countries who put actually there are their ministries together into one what because they recognized uh, you cannot always sort out if a need of a person is really health based or socially based or environmentally based or whatever you just know that person has a need and that needs to be addressed and needs to be taken care of and uh, we see that in situations like we now we, we talked in the beginning about COVID and all the things that are being done now, mm -hmm. suddenly it's possible to waive fees, to uh, be able to talk to patients on the phone and get billing for that. And all these things suddenly are possible Become to possible. do. Yep. Right? Yep. And, and I think in the same way that many things could be possible for the population of, of disabled in Canada uh, very easily if there's a, a political will to do that. I agree. In this t climate of change, I know there's a lot of, um, you know, confusion. There's even still some confusion uh, circulating, but there's, uh, if we look at it as opportunity, um, and we've already seen some nice opportunities, and we see this kind of era of childhood budgets as a time to be getting comfortable with having more of these conversations happen in the mm -hmm. office, um, mm -hmm. does put that decision-making between families and providers and, and opens the gateway for, um, you know, you know, practice for that to happen. And then hopefully when we're tasked with that needs base and goal setting uh, strategy that I personally would love to see spawn or span beyond autism and be more globally applied, um, 
you know, we have comfort there and we have capacity with people doing that. So this was, I think, hopefully a great start to kind of inspire some um, of our colleagues to be having those goal setting conversations and, and they're probably already doing it. Um, and, and just sometimes labeling that that's what you're doing in clinic can be helpful um, and really hone in on what it is that you, that family is going to be, what the takeaway is going to be. Um, so I just wanted to, to ask you any other last thoughts about um, what we've been talking about or, um, you know, the, the work that um, is going into the redesign. Uh, and if not, we will, we will leave it there. No, I think that was a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you and then uh, Mohammed, I'll ask you, you did offer to uh, show off your skills in, in beatboxing. I, you're, you, the microphone is yours if you're, um, if you're so inclined, but, but we will also save that for a limited time engagement at another date if needed. Sounds good. Maybe we'll save it for another day. <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you, Jackie.